0: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, IrishHistoryShow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Today we're very pleased to be joined again by Dr. Porrick Lenehan from NUI Galway. And again, we're returning to the 17th century, and this time we're looking at the Jacobite Parliament. So it's a very interesting topic. So, Porek, you're very welcome to the show. Hi, Karl. Thanks for asking me. Just to clarify for the listeners, what did a parliament mean in the 17th century, and how did it differ to what we understand a parliament to be today?
1: One major difference is that a parliament today is an institution. In other words, it sits very regularly. It it, it, it continues, maintains a more or less continuous existence. And as somebody has described it, the early modern parliament was not an institution, but an event. It is called quite infrequently. We're looking at a parliament that was called in 1689. Well, the previous one to that had been 1666. The previous one to that had been 1640, 1634, 1612, 13. So you can see there's a limit, what's that, a half dozen, less than a half dozen in an entire century. So. That's one difference. The other difference is, of course, the nature of the the franchise. There are two houses, as our own parliament has. I mean, the Senate is, Shanna would be a kind of a a ghost House of Lords with all its, frankly, fatuity and irrelevance of that. And the other then would be the House of Commons, and that's the, the major one. The Irish House of Commons has 300 representatives, 300 members of Parliament. Two sit for every county, that's 64, and the remainder sit for boroughs. A borough is a place, an urban space that has a charter. Now, it could be, it could be a rotten borough, a decayed medieval borough such as Bano, which no longer existed or it could be one of these new boroughs created in the plantation process of the early 17th century created in ulster and other ones in, in the midlands as well like for example at Lone would have been set up by a charter of james the first now the point i'm getting that determines the nature of the electorate so whereas a modern day electorate is, is universal we've got universal suffrage let's say a town like loan for example it is a type of borough that has a charter that is very restrictive its electorate is the governing or common council which typically comprises a dozen to 16 people that's your electorate therefore it is controlled by a very small elite and that's one way in which so the electorate certainly for the boroughs the county electorate is bigger because it includes freeholders it includes a relatively large number of landowners but the borough electorates are of the new boroughs are quite small the older medieval boroughs dublin wexford kilkenny clonmel limerick cork and so on d galway They would be freemen electorates usually. So those are somewhat bigger electorate. So to return the question of the electorate is different, the, the structure is different, the timing and incidence of parliaments
2: is different. Uh Podrick, John here. What was the power though of parliaments relative to the monarch? What what could they do?
1: In the 17th century, the monarch is still the monarch has one great power. He calls parliament. And he dismisses parliament or prorogues it. Uh, so therefore he decides when it, when it sits and he decides when it ends. So parliaments are, as far as kings are concerned, or monarchs, they're in nuisance. Why does the monarch call them? Let's say in the case of the English monarchy, the Stuarts, they've got two categories of revenue. One is their ordinary revenue. That is to say, Customs, Jews, the income off their own lands, income that is considered theirs. But if they, and that usually in peacetime would just about meet their expenditure. But once they go to war, the expenses zoom up. They then need to have more money voted. They need to raise taxes or they need to raise assessments. And the practice at this stage was that an assessment was only legitimate if the tax paying classes bought into it and they voted it. So, therefore, Parliament was a collection of the people who would be paying the tax, who are voting the taxes. And where does their power lie? The power lies, as you may guess, in saying, Your Majesty will vote these taxes if you do this or if you do this or he won't if you don't do it. So it's that they have the financial, if you like, weapon to use. Uh, now, that didn't always work insofar as, for example, the Irish Parliament, the Catholics had been promised in the Irish Parliament the graces, the, the, those concessions on religious matters, and then subsequently haven't got the money. Wentworth reneged on the promise. But that's unusual, and Winter was a singularly faithless character by, by, by normal standards. So the the powers of the Parliament can be considerable if they choose to exercise their financial power. And of course, we won't even go into looking at the English Parliament and the way in which that had redefined its powers vis-a-vis the monarchy. But we're just still talking about the,
2: the Irish Parliament. And Project, one more kind of preamble question before we get to 1689, which is mm, that... Sure. In the 1640s there's a kind of parliamentary de facto parliamentary regime among the confederate catholics even though it's ostensibly royalist monarchist movement what they're actually doing is a kind of a parliamentary government isn't it the general assembly
1: was of the confederate catholics was a parliament now it differed the confederate experiment differed insofar as they didn't have the equivalent of a house of lords they initially had a clerical convocation but oh God, I'm open to correction here. But I, I think it was a it was a unicameral assembly. They had a general assembly in which you had clergy, lords, and commons sitting, and then you had they had the executive, the supreme council. They didn't call it a parliament. It's different from the the the, the pre existing parliament. It sits in Kilkenny rather than in Dublin. Yeah, in many respects, the, the, the procedures are borrowed from the parliamentary
0: tradition, which was long-standing, centuries old at
1: this stage.
0: Now, Pork, just as we talked there about the Confederate Catholics and the the turmoil that gripped Ireland and Britain uh, with the, the wars of the 1640s, how did people view Parliament in the aftermath of that, and how did the Irish Parliament differ in the aftermath of this great struggle between Crown and Parliament?
1: Well, it differed in one respect. The 1666 Parliament was an entirely Protestant body. That's one huge difference. I mean that's the fundamental reality. You've got native newcomer, Catholic, Protestant, and their struggle for land ownership, for power, for political power, is the hallmark of the 17th century. Well, the 1660s sees old English or Catholic power. Catholics are still maybe... 40%, uh, maybe less, 35% of the membership of the commons, they lost that entirely. One member was returned for Toome and he was expelled from the Parliament. So those in Parliament were determined that it would be wholly and exclusively uh, a Protestant Parliament. So that's one way in which it differs. And that,
2: as it were, sets the scene for the 1689 Jacobite Parliament. And we should also mention, just for context, that a whole load of the Irish Catholic landowning class lost their lands as a result of the Cromwellian Revolution and never got it back even after the monarchy was restored. Well, that is setting up. I was going to touch on that.
1: That that explains the background to one of the most pressing demands of the Parliament of 1689, namely the repeal of the Acts of Settlement and Explanation. But now that you bring them up? It's as well to explain that. Prior to the catastrophe of the mid-century, Catholics had owned maybe 60% of land. By the 60, and these are figures that are very round figures, by the end of the Cromwellian period, that figure is down to around 12%. In the 1660s, that figure comes up again to around 20-22%. What happens is that all Catholic landowners had lost most of their land, a third, two thirds, depending. Um, The people who lost out most comprehensively were the gentry. So the aristocracy managed relatively better. And when it comes to the scramble post restoration of Charles II, those who get all or most of their lands back are those who have some connection to have as i say in irish a chorus of court a friend at court somebody who can lobby on their behalf who are connected through kin or marriage or have the money to spend bribes to pay bribes they're the people who get their lands or most of their lands back but most of the catholic landowners don't get anything back and they consider themselves hard done by considering that they had fought for charles ii who was the the king, they'd fought for him and they'd fought against the people who got their lands, who get to keep their lands. So that grievance is really raw. You might say this is the 1680s. It's how many years later, it's a quarter of a century later. But people hadn't forgotten and wanted to reverse that outcome. And that's the backdrop to the 1689 Parliament.
0: Well, one more term you might explain, Porik, before we go on, for listeners who aren't aware. When people hear the terms like Old English and New English, what do you mean?
1: Well, I was going to try and avoid it because I personally believe that the, the so-called Gaelic-Irish or Old English distinction, certainly by the latter part of the 17th century, is no longer relevant. But let's, let's go there anyway. We three are Gaelic-Irish, if you like. Why? Because well, you you know our names, our surnames, our patrilineal descent. Uh, what are old English names? Still some very common ones: Butler, Fitzgerald. Th- th- those will be the most. The, the, the uh, most. Barry, the most, for yeah. example. Barry, watch. Watch is probably the most common one of all. So some of those really common names. Their patrilineal descent is from medieval Norman or Anglo-Norman settlers. They remain Catholic into the 17th century. The native Irish or Gaelic Irish remained Catholic into the the 17th century. By the time we're talking about pretty much Irish full stop, Cromwell has seen to that. It's not the old distinction between old English, who were people who tended to be living in the towns in some parts of the country, the pale uh, South Leinster, particularly South Kilkenny, uh, South Tipperary, South Wexford, the Barrow of and Shore Valley. Th- those people, and they're, if you like, they're no longer English-speaking either for the most part, they're Irish-speaking. Some of the most successful, some of the best-known posts in Irish in the 17th century, people like Hackett and Ferreter are actually, of you know, are actually his names, so are it's just Old English. So that Old English-Gaelic-Irish distinction is merging and almost gone by the time we're talking about I will be making the argument that there is a faction problem within the Jacobites in that parliament so there are some factional tensions but they're not based on ethnicity or so-called ethnicity now you ask me then who are the new English the new English are people of English origin who are Protestant and it's as simple as that in other words it's often said, well, they're, they're settlers who come who come after the Reformation. But in fact, many of the settlers who came after the Reformation were themselves or became Catholic. And they became Old English and Irish by that definition. So basically, people who are of English descent or Scottish descent, indeed, and they are Protestant. That's the New English. Old English are people of English descent who are Catholic and at this stage Irish and the gaelic-irish are catholic and gaelic-irish
0: are you confused yet it's an interesting it's an interesting uh difference to how we view irish history we tend to view it as a prism between catholic on one side and protestant on the other or irish on one side english on the other
1: well the the, the, the religious in our time religion is the big marker of difference you, you could have somebody who was the first who was in the 1640s, for example, one of the generals, the most successful general of the Catholic Confederates was James Touche, Earl of Castlehaven. He was an English-born Catholic. He ultimately sides with the Irish Catholics. The most successful, one of the most successful English generals of the 1640s in Ireland was Mora O'Brien, Baron Inchiquin, Quinn, Mouragh who is impeccably Gaelic-Irish on all sides, but is... Protestant, and we're Protestant, and that's the decisive factor. So it's religion is the marker,
2: really. And what about ideology? So, you know, you have possibly anachronistic terms, because they mean something different then, but like you have Parliament against Monarchy, you have Republican against Royalists. How does that play out in Ireland? Do you mean now, John, in the 1640s, or do you mean later on? Let's say the Restoration period.
1: In the Restoration period, there are no Republicans among the, the, the Irish. The Irish are not Republicans. They believe in monarchy. There's a in the 1640s, there's a famous or infamous little book by a man called Conor O'Mahony, published in Lisbon. And in it, he advocates, it's written in 1644, 45. And in it, he advocates that the Irish elect their own monarchy from the O'Neills. I think he, is, he has in mind. But that's considered a terribly scandalous idea. The Irish are Stuart loyalists. They are loyal to the Stuarts, even though the Stuarts are Protestant, they're fickle, they're unreliable. And that's a hard thing to get your head around, is the strength and depth of that Irish attachment to the Stuarts. It's something I I can't. So that in defiance of experience, they retain this loyalty. That loyalty is shaken by their a sort of betrayal by Charles II. Charles, when he's restored, would have liked to do right by him. But fundamentally, he doesn't want to go, as he puts it himself, on his travels again. He doesn't want to alienate people. He's somebody who takes who doesn't take a great deal of trouble to look after his friends, or indeed a great deal of trouble to persecute his enemies. He's indolent. He's lazy in that respect. And so the Irish are royalists. They're pro Stuart. They are against... The sort of the Whigs, the Whigs are emerging in the the Whig party, is emerging at the time of the Popish plot in the 1670s in England, late 1670s. Oliver plunkett falls victim to that plot. They want to exclude a Catholic from ever being king of, uh, from ever being king. That's to say, they want to exclude James, Duke of York, the future James II, and they failed to do so. The Irish position there is that monarchy is the succession, the sacrosanct in that sense, that parliaments, the English parliament particularly, cannot take on itself that it will say who will be monarch. So they're very much against the restriction of the power of monarchs, why? Because if you're looking at two, the two institutions, the English monarchy and the English parliament, the English parliament is vehemently anti-Catholic, consistently and persistently so. The English monarch, on the other hand, is far less anti-Catholic and at times, as we will say in the case of James II, out and out, favourable towards Catholics. For reasons of, if you like, self-interest, they find themselves in favour of strong monarchy rather than any parliamentary strictures or restrictions being put on the monarch's freedom of action.
0: So when James comes to the throne, when does his actions in Ireland start to take effect? Well,
1: James comes comes to throne in 1685, and he is in effect chased out of England by a Dutch invasion in late 1688. Now, it's his actions in England and in Ireland, but mostly in England, that lead to the conviction in the English public, which by and large is vehemently anti-Catholic. They are prepared. To even James's supporters, the Tories, they don't like the fact that he is a Catholic. There will they will put up with that, they will support him because he because the alternative is civil war, but they don't like that fact. Ultimately, the event that brings the whole thing crashing down is the birth of a son to James II. That son, who the future James III, Third, he is presenting the possibility of it, not just a once-off monarchy, but an actual Catholic dynasty. That is something that isn't acceptable to Tories or Whigs in England. They conspire with William of Orange, James's nephew, and he brings an army to invade England, and with the aid of this fifth column in England, he drives James off the throne and out of England. James's Kingdom, he's lost England. Um, he's still got a fight ongoing in Scotland, and that's that's important. He still has a party in in Scotland and their fight, but he's losing there. The only kingdom in which he, he predominates is Ireland. Having fled to France, he is then in March 1689 he comes to Ireland to fight not for Ireland but for. Ireland as a stepping stone to Scotland and to England, as part of fighting a uh, restoration, fighting his
0: way back onto the throne. And particularly from when Simon first comes to the throne, what type of actions does he take to oh, change yeah. the you know the makeup of political power in Ireland? Oh, absolutely! But well, that, that's it, it, when he comes when he becomes king. He's a Catholic.
1: He wants to insofar as possible, and he used the word établir in French, to establish. He knows that he's not going to live that long. So he wants, and he doesn't for most of the time envisage that he's going to have a successor. So he wants to strengthen the position of Catholics in all of his kingdoms. In Ireland, that involves, he's pushed rather further than he wants to go, by his main if you like irish conduit his main irish advisor is a large than life character i wrote i wrote his biography i'm absolutely fascinated by him which is richard talbot earl of tyr now i mean if you're you talk you asked me you're on call about old english well talbot is if you like quintessential old English background, from uh, Carton in County Kildare. His father had been recorder or chief legal officer of Dublin Corporation. They were big family. Maybe half of them are priests in one, in one order or the other. Famously, Peter the Jesuit, who was at one time a confessor to Charles II's wife, uh, Catherine of Braganza, and he was, he was well got, a very a, a political intriguer. But Talbot is... A duelist, he's a womanizer, he's a classic restoration rake, and he's somebody who met James in exile. He's older than James, and I think James was always under his sway if he's in his company. So you have a pattern of Talbot going too far. So Talbot initially is made commander of the army, and he proceeds to catalysize the army, dismissing wholesale Protestant soldiers, denying he's going to do it and then doing it, lying dick they call him. Then he he gets rid of Protestant officers, and that's difficult because that's a commission is a form a species of property. James calls them back and to give out to him and then Talbot overalls him and this sort of dynamic goes on. The result is that by the time of the by the time that James has been driven off the throne, Talbot was commander of the army. He is now. Lord Deputy, he's the King's Man in Dublin Castle, he's the first Catholic Lord Deputy, Barry, if you exclude Clan briefly in 1649-50. Really, he's the first since the Reformation, first and last. So he's the King's Man in Ireland, and he manages to keep Ireland, with the exception of Ulster, pretty much in James's control. So when James lands in in Ireland in March, he's got three quarters of a kingdom standing with him.
2: This feels a little bit like, you know, one of those films where they start at the end and then they keep doing flashbacks. However, I have one more question. So you mentioned with the exception of Ulster, Padraig, what's happening in Ulster?
1: Our story arc is all wrong. I keep getting pulled back to explain, but that's probably my fault. I, I'm no, assuming a have of knowledge. No, um, that's okay.
2: It's, uh, it's, it's like Pulp Fiction. It's good.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, what you have is Ulster was different insofar as it has a significant settler, non-native Protestant population at this stage, maybe 20, 25% of the population. Uh, its land ownership is overwhelmingly Protestant rather than Catholic. When James is driven from England and William lands, the big problem for Talbot or Tyrconnell, as we now call him is that his army most of his army he sent it to England he's lost it they're gone they're, they, they, they're prisoners of war of William and they're sent off to Hungary to fight the Turks and they're never heard of again right and that's so he's 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 a very he's just got the rump of an army left. you have these Protestant associations these are if you like militias, that are formed in the various Ulster counties. And they also, in the Overspill counties, there's one in Sligo as well, which you can consider part of Ulster for these purposes. They control pretty much all of Ulster. The only control that Talbot exercises in the province is a castle at Carrickfergus, and uh, Carrickfergus Castle, and Newry and Charlemont in County Armagh, pretty much that's it, those, those, those three outposts. So therefore, his control of Ulster is very, very tenuous. He's not in a position before James lands to attack them. However, just as James lands, what he's been doing is pretending to William that he wants to surrender, all the while building up his military strength. Once he's built it up sufficiently, he then invades Ulster. So as James is landing in Ireland, Talbot's man, Hamilton, uh, Richard Hamilton, invades Ulster and is hugely successful. He sweeps through Ulster, going from east to west, sweeping up Port Lenone, the Battle of uh, Claddyford, all of these. He he, he sweeps up the, the, the eastern associations first, then the Tyrone, Monaghan, Armagh. They're all driven westward, driven to Donegal. They're defeated in Donegal and they're driven into city of derry that's to say the refugee armies and the civilians living around so while james is coming to ireland settling and bedding down in ireland all of this is happening so in fact it's a good news story from james's point of view when the parliament has been called james has control not just of three provinces but of four provinces with the exception a very important exception as it will turn out would be the tiny wall city of Derry and also as happened in as well.
0: You mentioned therefore he calls the Irish Parliament together. Why was the Irish Parliament called? Well, for, he didn't
1: really want to in one way. Uh, but why uh, he didn't he was reluctant to call Parliament because he knows what's going to happen. He's going to be asked, he's going, going the Irish are going to demand that the acts of settlement and explanation are reversed. And to remind you, the acts of settlement and explanation are the acts which more or less confirm the Cromwellian land confiscations, with some exceptions, who are provided for in those acts. So they're standing grievance for the Catholics. He knows that they're going to want to open that, so so that that's going to be a contentious issue. Nonetheless, he needs money. He's fighting a war. He needs revenue. And he wants to be seen to call a parliament, do it the right way. He doesn't, he's conscious that his enemies, the Whigs, particularly, they linked his religion, popery, as they would say, an arbitrary government. So tyranny and popery are linked together. And he's trying to get make the point that a Catholic monarch is perfectly capable of operating within the constitution and acting in a proper parliamentary fashion. So to answer your question, he calls the parliament because he wants money. That's always why monarchs they never call a parliament except maybe the Henry VI's Reformation Parliament, they never call a parliament except to get money.
2: But the Parliament in this case wants something in return. So what is what's the parliament's agenda?
1: Well, the first point I'd make about it, I suppose, is that it's a Catholic Parliament. Why is it a Catholic Parliament, given that the, the last one had been 100% Protestant? Because what has happened in the meantime is that Talbot used what are called quo waranto, quo, q u o w a r r a n t o proceedings, whereby he would call a borough to produce his charter, he would withdraw that charter, issue them with a new one, which would change the electorate. And hey presto, instead of having an exclusively Protestant electorate, you now have a Catholic electorate. Therefore, the boroughs be- start returning Catholic townspeople, not Protestant townspeople. And newly admitted Catholic members of the Common Council or the, the new or freemen, they elect Catholic members of parliament. Now, there's 300 members of that parliament. Of the 300, Donegal, Fermanagh and Derry don't return members. And a number of the boroughs in Ulster don't return members. There's 70 members short of 300. There were 224 Catholic members and six Protestant members of the Commons. And in the Lords, you have the Protestant bishops, the Church of Ireland bishops. They remain as the official ecclesiastical representatives. So that's your Irish Parliament. And then the speaker, or the leader of the Commons is a man called Nagel, the Corkmanster, Richard Nagel, he's a lawyer, and he's a close ally of Connell. And he, if you like, stars proceedings. Now, what do they want? You see, you'd asked me earlier on about the division between Old English and Gaelic Irish. And Really, there is a division in the Parliament, but the division is between what's called new interest, the new interest within the Catholic community. These are people who did all right out of the Cromwellian settlement. How might that be? For example, um, I was studying a Latin poem, an epic Latin poem. I'll give you a a quote from it, actually, in a moment, by a man called... um, Nugent, Thomas Nugent, Baron Riverston, another another lawyer. And his family, the Nugents, were Earls of Westmead. So his father's Earl of Westmead. He loses all his land in Westmead. He then gets a portion of land in Connacht in South County Galway, around present day near Hortina Mines' um, palace in County Galway. And the Nugents, but the Nugents get their land in Westmead back and they get their land in Galway, they get to keep it. So they've done very well out of it, their new interest in that sense. Or you might have merchants or other people who've taken out mortgages or bought land that was granted to to Protestants, bought it back or bought other estates. So you've got a Catholic interest, like Turconnell, Talbot himself. Talbot himself is a big landowner at this stage. He has picked up an awful lot of land. He had been acting as an agent for restoring Catholic landowners. The deal was that he got you your lands back, he got to keep a third of them for himself. So he had picked up big estates across the country. So these people, Talbot, for example, doesn't want to see the acts of settlement and explanation reversed. Because if they if if they are reversed, he loses his lands. So his idea was that the new owners and the old owners should accept a compromise, that the grantees should surrender half of what they got and the old owners should settle for half of what they owned and everybody would be equally unhappy, except for Talbot, who would be very happy indeed. That was his proposal and that was rejected, okay? That is not, we're looking at that in a moment, that is not acceptable to most members of the commons who represent people who'd lost their lands and want them back. But again, if I might quote from that, that poem, it's, called, it's, the, it's a very interesting one that hasn't been, Fully, there are very few sources about the Jacobite regime. There were until recently we knew of only two: the Light to the Blind and the Macaria Excidium. This is a third one. Um, the other two was one was written by a Turcon, a pro-Tercan supporter. The second was was. Written by somebody who's for Sarsfield, Patrick Sarsfield. This one is very much, he tries to steer a middle way. He's a new interest man. He admires Ter Connell, but he also admires Sarsfield. But he deplores the proceedings of the Irish Parliament. And he deplores the idea of, and I quote the Latin, Acta ede placuat popular noctura arrogante, that acts be published which would harm the folk that asked for them. In other words, what he's saying is the demand for the complete reversal of the acts of settlement was a very dangerous thing and he also said it's foolish and i just quote from the english translation by my my friend and colleague Sidwell of the university of calgary so a hunter sold in various lots the skin from a bear he had not captured yet the promised beast that let the hunter down in other words you're as another one of the bishops the Protestant bishop said the Irish are trying to dispose of the skin before the beast has been slain. In other words, they're trying to dispose of lands and confiscate lands, but they haven't won the war yet. So that's the big difference or the big, if you like, division within the, the Catholics as they, as they sit down in the in the parliament.
2: You know, it's interesting, though. I mean, you know, James's narrative and the narrative of, of lots of writers about this have been that, oh, well, the Jacobites in Ireland spent all this time squabbling among themselves and they were so inefficient. But another way to look at it is that this isn't just a rubber stamp parliament. You know, this is just genuine debate and, and the monarch and even his his deputy don't always get their way. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And this is not some sort of trivial distinction. It's very hard to disentangle the equity of land ownership at this point so they're not a rubber stamp parliament and they go through various I, I i might take it through what they actually do but their their achievements are significant i mean they're criticized because while this is going on the jacobite siege of derry is happening as we speak and or as as they speak in parliament and someone argued that a lot of the members of parliament would have been better off being with the regiments and actually fighting in Derry. And perhaps the parliament, it was untimely. Perhaps it shouldn't have been sitting while the war was going on, but it was James who, who wanted it to be called. It wasn't particularly um, inefficient or ineffectual. There's a tendency because a particular group lose to retrospectively explain their loss by pointing to problems. Whereas you don't tend to point to problems in organisations, or institutions, or armies, or what that win out in the end, because there isn't that problem of explaining explaining failure. Would you like me to take you through what it actually did? The first is the act of recognition, and that's very much in the British Jacobite tradition as well. The members begin the proceedings by re- reiterating the traditional, the classic theories of hereditary right and divinely ordained monarchy. Now, what do I mean by that? Divinely ordained monarchy means that monarchs, they're answerable to God, they're appointed by God. And God makes his intentions clear by a hereditary succession. In other words, it is not for man to interfere with the proper succession. In other words, if James has a son, and that son should be the king and that's it and we are not and we do not owe allegiance to William and Mary, Mary who's James's daughter so I mean it's complicated but William is both James's nephew and his son-in-law. He becomes king because the English Convention Parliament makes him king in effect, it makes him and William, William and Mary make them joint monarchs and the Irish Parliament is saying, hang on a second, you can't do that. Parents don't make monarchs, God makes monarchs. So, in that sense, they are articulating Tory and, partic- and ja- ultimately Jacobite opinions about the indefeasible nature of a hereditary monarchy. And this is something that they deserve some credit. They advocate liberty of conscience. In other words, there is to be civic and political equality for Roman Catholics, Protestant dissenters. In other words, there isn't one privileged religion, the Episcopalian or the Church of Ireland. All, you know, Protestant, Catholic, and dissenters. In other words, Church of Ireland, Roman Catholic. Presbyterian they're all on the same page they're all on the same level they have complete freedom of worship and civic and political equality. I mean sorry to um,
2: try to jump in there yeah. Podrick I mean it, it does strike me as somewhat you know ironic and unfair to the Jacobites and uh, James that you know he's remembered as this supporter of tyranny and uh, you know religious oppression whereas actually the Jacobite Parliament in Ireland uh, legislated for liberty of conscience. They, re- they legislated for liberty of conscience. I'll explain why Why it is that his Irish subjects, you see,
1: his Irish Protestant subjects and his English Protestant subjects, why do they, are they alienated from They're alienated from because of his religion. And he necessarily has to, if you like, not call the English Parliament because the English Parliament he knows will be hostile to, to Catholicism. So he is in favour of of freedom of religion or liberty of conscience. But they would say that is only pretend. He's only pretending to to favour universal liberty of conscience. For the moment, it's a sop or it's a way of fooling the dissenters into thinking that James is their friend. By dissenters, I mean Protestants who are not members of the Church of England or Church of Ireland. That is to say Presbyterians, Baptists, Quakers, those sort of denominations, and they would consider this to be a ploy. Now, I wouldn't regard it as a ploy. I mean, James himself said about you know Jesus whipped wasn't he whipped the sinners out of the temple? I don't think there's any point in trying to whip people into the temple. That's the um, the liberty of conscience aspect of it. Uh, then there's also, and I read this out slowly, that the character act. Now, the Declaratory Act affirms that the Kingdom of Ireland was always distinct from England. No act of the English Parliament is binding unless ratified by the Irish Parliament. I will quote the, the, the quote, Ireland is and hath always been, or had been always a distinct kingdom from that of His Majesty's realm of England. So that's the Declaration of Irish Parliamentary Independence. And that's something we might come back to, but it's something that is of enormous resonance for the future. For the moment, it's tactical. They know that the English Parliament is bitterly hostile. They have to establish an Irish Parliament, an independent Irish Parliament. And the question of Poynings Law remains another bone of contention, whereby Poyning, Poynings, P-O-Y-N-I-N-G-S, Poynings was, was a medieval statute which gave the English monarch and by extension his cabinet at the stage the power of veto over irish legislation so the irish parliament doesn't have in legislative initiative and that's something else that they rail against so you have this assertion of parliamentary independence you have a land settlement and the land settlement is by parliament complete restoration of confiscated lands complete so the parliament votes down talbot's compromise proposal whereby the old proprietors would just get half their estates back. They repeal the Acts of Settlement and Explanation. They reject the Protestant interpretation of the 1641 rebellion as being a Catholic, Jesuitical massacre. So they're turning the clock back to 1641.
2: And, and just to, sorry, sorry Podrick, yes. just before you, you get on to yes. the next point. Yeah, one of the amazing things, though, I find about this is James actually agrees to all of this pretty much. And, and you know, there's a great quote from James saying that they're they're ramming all these things down my throat. But he, he does agree.
1: I mean, the, uh, the 1699 Parliament ended up going, it went much further than James would have liked. It made him, and I, I can't find the actual quote, but it says something in effect like you're saying, they made me take unpalatable medicine to do things that I, I really would, didn't want to do. But he does realise these are the only people that are offering to raise an army and fight in his behalf, his English and Scottish subjects, barring those who have come with him. I mean, some of the Jacobites in Dublin at the stage are English and Scottish Jacobites, but mainly he has been rejected. So he doesn't have he doesn't have any choice in the matter, and he resists. He resists some things. I don't think he actually ratifies the the the, the repeal of Pointing's law. In fact, so he does resist some of those points where he can he certainly didn't want complete restoration of confiscated land because he knows how that will go down in england he has to be conscious of an english audience and remember this is something i didn't emphasize enough james is a very patriotic Englishman. he doesn't agree that the irish should have an independent parliament he thinks the irish parliament should be subordinate to the english parliament that is the english empire he's very much an Englishman man in that sense, but as it happens, an English Catholic. So he, much of what the Irish, most of what the Irish are looking for is
0: a bitter pill for him to swallow. Now, Porik, is it completely wishful thinking to imagine that this Jacobite parliament could have reconciled at least some of the Protestant population in Ireland? But if they were looking at land, is it a non-issue that they could have reconciled them?
1: No. You might say from Talbot's point of view, he envisaged an Ireland in which Catholics would predominate in the army, in administration, in law, in parliament. I mean, the way we see his mind working, I think he envisaged a coexistence. If you look at the judges on the bench, two-thirds are Catholic, one-third Protestant, and I think he's he doesn't see an exclusive Catholic monopoly of power, but he sees them as predominant. However, that is not the view of most of the members of parliament. And they make their position quite clear with something called the Act of Attainder. Attainder means declaring somebody to be a traitor. And if they're a traitor, then their lands and their property is it falls forfeit and can be confiscated. So the bill. Named 2,470 Protestants as traitors, subject to confiscation of property and their lives. Now, James, Tircon and many others view this as unwise, but they wanted to raise money quickly for the taxes of Parliament. And they wanted to raise them on the basis of that confiscated land. Now, how do do people um, fall attainted if, for example, those people who had fled to England to avoid James II's arrival, or before that, many of the, the larger landowners had just fled to England or to Ulster, and they give them the option, come back by such and such a time, or you will be attended. So that it seems to indicate that there doesn't seem to be much room for the Protestant landowning class in this new Ireland, in this new Catholic Ireland. Thomas Davis, and I digress slightly, is, and Gavin Duffy, Damas Davis, the young Irelander, is one of the earliest to show uh, a great interest in this particular parliament. He wrote a book called The Irish Parliament of James II in, I think, 1843. And he, while he generally, now he's very enthusiastic about the, the Patriot Parliament, as he called it, but as to the Attainder Act, we hardly censure this Attainer Act, it was a mistake it was the mistake of the irish parliament it bound up in the hearts and interests of those who were named in it and of their children in williams William success it could not be enforced they were absent it could not be terrible till victory sanctioned it and then it would be reckless and cruel to execute Yet let us judge the man rightly he's sort of saying this is the context james had been hunted out of england by lies treachery bigotry cabal and a dutch invader for having attempted to grant religious liberty by his prerogative. Those attainted were nine out of 10 in arms against him and their country. They had been repeatedly offered free pardon. Just before the act was brought in, a free pardon accepting only 10 persons was offered, yet few of the insurgents came in. And James, instead of forbidding quarter or hanging his prisoners or any other acts of rig- rigour, usual in hereditary governments down to our own time, consented to an act requiring the chief persons of the insurrection to come in period specified and amply long enough to stand their trial. So, in other words, Davis didn't like this Attainer Act. Davis is trying to create a new Catholic and Protestant Irish identity. And he much of what the Irish Patriot Parliament is doing, he can see as conducive to that, but not the act of attainder. That's one where he's, that's a sticking point for him. If I could continue with this act of attainder and the question you posed, that act of Attainer becomes the used by... Irish Protestants, the Anglo-Irish Protestants, in their canonical text. The canonical text is that written by William King, Bishop of Derry, and he wrote The State of the Protestants of Ireland. That's in 1692. And King is a bishop. King is a Tory. King swore an oath of allegiance to the monarch. And he has a problem in his conscience explaining to himself and to others how do we, and other members of of the Church of Ireland, how do we justify withdrawing our allegiance from James? Remember, the Church of England and the Church of Ireland doesn't believe in elective or contract monarchy. They believe in hereditary succession, divine right, inalienable succession. So how does he go about this? One of the devices he used is to say well look let's god decide and god decided at the boyne therefore yeah, but that's not a very satisfactory in other words who wins must be right insofar as he engages re- rationally with this problem he uses the act of attainder because he makes the claim that Locke does as well that the immediate and object or end of government is to protect property in the act of attainder, That is so sweeping, so all encompassing, that it justifies Protestants withdrawing their allegiance from James, because by assenting to that act, he is assenting to their destruction, and no people can obey a monarch who is bent on their destruction. Uh, So that's the, if you like, the context of the the, the act of attainder.
2: And I suppose to Irish Protestants it does justify this significance that they gave from the eighteenth century onwards to the the War of the Two Kings that it was a war for the survival of their community.
1: It was a war, yes, and it's a war in which they they're able to portray. Now there were and would be Church of Ireland uh, Protestant Jacobites, but they're rare enough birds now, and most of them are. If Tory and religion or Whig, Whig in politics, in other words, they believe that it's, it's appropriate to depose a king. That's the big ideological thing that everybody has to wrestle with. How, in literally, in the name of God, do we explain to ourselves and to others not obeying James II? You can use the uh, vacant throne argument, in other words, that James fled England, therefore the throne is vacant, therefore somebody had to occupy it. And we invited William and Mary, who just happened to be there to occupy it. And that's it. So therefore vacant throne, James vacated for some reason best known to himself. And that's a constitutional fiction. That's not particularly satisfactory. The other one is the the, the argument used by King the one of that James was bent on their destruction, which is not actually Terribly strong either, because James exerted himself time and again to protect his Protestant subjects in Ireland against what he would have seen as Catholic excesses. I've often wondered what would have happened had James reconquered Scotland and then reconquered England and re-established himself on the throne. Would he have recognised the Irish parliamentary independence? I think he would have. He would have fought back. He would have tried to claw back that dependence as much as he could. There was a fundamental difference of opinion between the King and his Irish subjects on that question.
2: You know, we can debate the would-haves and so on, but the fact is they did lose the war. So let's talk briefly about what happened in the next Irish Parliament, because basically it's reversed everything that they did in
1: 1689. Yes, the Acts of the Irish Parliament are what's the word that's used by, by, by Molyneux they, William Molyneux the late pretended parliament they always refer to it as a late, the late recent pretended parliament under King James at Dublin all its acts are nullified its act of attainder is reversed so its records are not kept, it's, it's a nullity it is not counted as a parliament it is a pretended parliament Therefore, the reaction of the authorities subsequently
0: is to act as if that never took place. Porak, how do you view that Jacobite Parliament? How do you think we should look at it in Irish history?
1: Um, I'm going to give you a quote here. It's 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 picked up on by the Young Islanders, and by Thomas Davis particularly. And the Parliament... Uh, D- Davis wrote his study of the Parliament... And in it, he writes, the Irish Parliament, and he describes it as the Patriot Parliament, and I'll explain what he means by that in a minute, writes Davis, and I quote, boldly announced our national independence, in words which Molyneux shouted, on to Swift, and Swift to Lucas, and Lucas to Flood, and Flood and Grattan redoubling the cry, Dungan and Church rang, and Ireland was again a nation. Now, what does he mean? He means that the 18th century Patriot movement, the Anglo-Irish patriotism, starting with William Molyneux as is Dean Swift, Lucas at mid-century, Henry, Henry Flood and Henry Grattan, the Irish Volunteers, the Dungannon Convention, the 1782 Parliament, which had its declaratory act, which repealed Poyne's law, which enabled parliamentary independence in 1782, that, that is part of the same story as the Irish Parliament of 1689. So he's trying to create this narrative arc of an unending struggle for Irish independence from England, regardless of which is the dominant group in Ireland. They're always struggling. That's the, that's the constant as he sees it. And it doesn't really matter whether they're of old English, new English, Gaelic-Irish descent, the logic of the situation is always the same it's a very attractive vision it makes history relevant to a 19th century nationalist and in some in one very important respect it's complete nonsense i mean he talks about in words which molyneux shouted onto swift he's referring to a man called william molyneux who wrote a book called the case of Ireland's being bound by acts of parliament in England and elsewhere stated. That's written in 1698. So that's written nine years after the, um, the Patriot Parliament. And in it, Molyneux argues that the Irish Parliament is and should be independent of the English Parliament. So, yes, he's coming to the same conclusion as the Jacobite Parliament. He does not refer, and I, even in preparing for this lecture, this interview with you guys, th- there's a search facility. I went through the, the, the original document. The only reference to the Jacobite Parliament is to a pretended Parliament, and he refers to it only once or twice. He doesn't draw on the uh, Jacobite Parliament for inspiration. He is driven to proclaiming Irish parliamentary independence because of the logic of the Anglo Irish, and he pretends, he then says that the the Irish are the people of Ireland and then he sees that he he chafes at commercial restrictions and the colonial and imperialist restrictions on the Irish Parliament and he rejects that and that's an argument that Swift takes up at the time of the drapier letters it's an argument that Lucas takes up ultimately Flood and Grattan manage with the Patriot movement to have what what is on paper an independent irish parliament set up in 1782 on paper but what happens after 1782 is likely what would have happened had james been restored in 1690 you have even though on paper the irish parliament is separate from and independent of the english parliament the Lord Lieutenant in Dublin Castle is appointed by the King. And given that the English parliament is predominant over the King in the 18th century, that would have been an appointment of the English parliament. That person is through the use of certainly post 1782, through the use of the three P's patronage, what is it, pensions, peerages and and patronage, able to win and maintain a working majority in the Irish House of Commons most of the time. So therefore, the argument about political theoretical equality is one thing, but the, the reality of the subordination of the Irish Parliament is quite another. So, to get back to Davis, Davis makes the study of the Irish Parliament and makes its precedent apparently relevant to the 18th century patriot and therefore apparently relevant to the 19th century Irish nationalist and to 20th century Irish nationalism. And the point I'd make is that to, to do that, he has to actually squeeze round pegs into square holes or square pegs into round holes to make that happen.
0: So thank you very much. That was Dr. Porrick Lennon from NUI Galway. And on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-presenter, John Dorney from the Irish Story website. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episode of the show, please go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie follow us on twitter at irish history pod or on facebook facebook facebook.com forward slash the irish history show and if you get a chance please rate and review the show on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts